You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, there's been some headlines from Washington, D.C. lately that have been interesting, specifically around um, taxes, which, you know, we have um, a Democrat-led House and they and a and Democrat president. And so, so we're seeing a lot of talk, talk about taxes. And in a recent uh, bill that was put forward by Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, um, it wasn't initially in, even in the press release, but... Uh, it took aim at uh, an ETF superpower, which is sort of the tax efficiency that's always been built into um, the ETF structure. Uh, so what about that uh, did, caught your attention? And then what, what has been the aftermath in the, the week plus since? Yeah, I mean, there's been a bunch of articles on it. Um, and I, I'll read you the Wall Street Journal headline. It's pretty basic. It says, Democratic tax proposal takes aim at ETFs. And what they're trying to do is potentially tax the in-kind creation redemption process. Um, that process where, and we'll go into this a little more, where you exchange the stocks or bonds for shares of the ETF. There's no cash exchanging. So ETFs are able to sort of avoid some of the capital gains distributions that mutual funds have to deal with. Um, although mutual funds also have that ability. But largely speaking, in any given year, you might find mutual funds have like I don't know, 60, 70% of them distributing capital gains while only, say, 5% of ETFs do. It's usually in that ballpark. Now, that said, you're not avoiding taxes as an ETF investor. You're sort of just deferring them so that when you sell your ETF, you get taxed on those gains. You just don't get a sort of ongoing distribution because of what other people in the fund did. So I've always been of the thought that the ETF was like fair, um, whereas the mutual fund, if anything, should be given some relief to make it more like an ETF where you're taxed based on what you do, not based on what someone else does. So uh, hopefully we can dig into this, but that's ultimately one of the superpowers because advisors in particular, when have clients in taxable accounts, really like the fact that they can kind of sort of have control over that uh, when they're taxed. Uh, so I would still say that low cost Intraday liquidity, transparency, those things still make them a viable force, even if this were to go away. But it's a biggie. Okay, so to walk us through the bill, the ETF industry's reaction to that bill, and then some of the the nuances of all things tax, we're going to be joined by Dave Nadig, who's the director of research at ETF Trends, and Jeffrey Clone, professor of law at Fordham University, whose research on this topic was actually cited by Senator Ron Wyden in the proposed bill. This time on Trillions, the ETF's tax nightmare. Professor Cologne, 
Dave Nadig, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Okay, Dave, I want to start with you. Um, the the status quo that sort of Eric referred to has been sort of this this thing that has made the ETF special for a really long time. Um, and I want to kind of rewind the clock here to to when this news broke, because you were at a meditation retreat um, <laughs> that was sort of interrupted, I think, uh, by this news. So, so a what what happened um, a, at this meditation camp once uh, this headline crossed your well? Your, it, uh, it was attention. it was as I was on the way out the door. So luckily, it didn't interrupt anything, and I was able to you know drop in and find my inner peace for four or five days. But uh, you know, this was a classic Friday afternoon press release. Um, you know, which the finance industry is just really addicted to dropping these major ideas on. Friday. Fridays at four thirty. I don't know what it is, um, but you know, I the, the proposal is really pretty straightforward, and and it's actually one that Professor suggested in one of his papers, which was just eliminating a single line of the tax code, a fifty two b six. If I can get that off the top of my head, I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Which is a single line in the tax code which exempts. Uh, mutual funds, both ET, you know, anything that's a re registered investment company exempts them from having to effectively worry about uh, the the tax issues of in kinding out um, or uh, honestly in kinding in uh, securities into the portfolio, which is which is a the the way ETFs manage to maintain net asset value versus market price, right? That that creation redemption mechanism is why ETFs work. Um, putting a giant barrier for taxes around that. Um, could be interesting and problematic. We're going to get into that, I'm sure. But that was that was the thing that he dropped out there. Um, and you know whether or not that would raise substantial amounts of revenue, whether or not that's fair to investors, fair to the government, fair to non-investors. I think that's probably what we're going to dig into. And um, let me just jump in here. You wrote an article about this, and you mm -hmm. opened up with why are ETFs tax efficient. So just as a primer to people who may not understand exactly how they are. Could you go through what you explained oh, in yeah, that section? Oh, yeah, sure. So, so you know, I think most folks know that ETFs create and redeem shares pretty much continuously. Uh, you know, a bigger ETF, so top 25 ETF that's trading every day, you know, like water is going to have multiple creations and redemptions a day. Uh, and one of the things that the issuer gets to do on a redemption is choose which tax lot to hand back out to the authorized participant in the process of doing that redemption. And of course, they always pick the tax lot that has the lowest basis because that's the one that would generate the most gains if they ever had to sell it. Uh, and they hand that back out to the AP. The AP, because they're a market maker too, just chooses to take the mark to market, which is what every market maker does. Uh, they, that's a choice that they get in the tax code is to either treat trading as an inventory process or as a trading on your own account process. All market makers choose to do that as an inventory process. So the incoming shares at the market maker come in mark to market and they'll just pay ordinary gains if they then later sell those at a gain because that's how market making works. The fund doesn't have to book a gain on that lower basis that they handed out to that mark to market. Um, so it acts as a form of tax deferral. It's effectively like having a giant 401k that is an ETF where you only have to worry about paying taxes on the way out. Okay, Professor Clone, I want to bring you in. So everything we've talked about, I'm, I'm just curious, why, why do we need to change anything? 
Okay. Yeah. No. I, I think it, um, uh, Dave laid it out very, very clearly. Uh, the benefits for ETFs. A couple of things. I think the thing that stimulated this proposal, um, uh, had sp- I'd spoken to uh, Wyden's office, was actually some reporting that was done by you guys at, at Bloomberg. You know, Zach Miter and Rachel Evans on basically I, I call them pathologies, but using I think in what what you know most tax commentators would say is an inappropriate way the A fifty two B six right. They've kind of built on this uh, some uh, transactions that, you know, viewed from the, the lens of a uh, tax person and even, even Congress now uh, are, are somewhat uh, abusive. And we will talk about those. Those, those are the so-called heartbeat trades, right? Um, and I think that's what stimulated the interest. Um, and then when they started to look uh, at the potential revenue that, that could be raised by this provision, I know that there is a preliminary estimate by the Joint Committee that it's about $200 billion over the next 10 years. Uh, you know, it's preliminary, uh, and, I, and I'm sure uh, that doesn't take into account, you know, adjustments that would be made. But I think the combination of those two things is like reading about the, the abuses. And I know it's been talked about on the Joint Committee for a while. And then also, uh, basically, the need for revenue to pay for uh, the other items in the uh, in, in the in the tax proposals, right? So a combination yep. of those two, it kind of brought this to the forefront, um, uh, and that's kind of um, that's kind of where actually, we are today. Go ahead. I just want to. I, I totally remember that article. Uh, we actually had Rachel and Zach on the show. I did. I did. I think Dodge was probably not the right word. I don't know if Dirty Secret was the right word. That's a debate for another day, but. Or maybe it is for today, but um, I saw you wrote an article about this before that that article came out. Right. So my article. Let me let me just be clear. My article uh, it came out in 2017, but I right. you know, it was kind of written in 2015. So in the article, I didn't discuss the the heartbeat trades. I was just looking at this uh, um, uh, provision. Uh, uh, you know, even even disregarding uh, the heartbeat trades and the portfolio adjustments, uh, and I just looked at it and said I, I didn't really think it was really sound tax policy. And you know, my my point was that it gave ETF uh, an advantage over. Over mutual funds, basically identical mutual funds, you follow the same uh, structure, sorry, the, the same uh, uh, index, the same investments, but mutual funds will inevitably end up paying, you know, whatever we call 80 basis points, maybe 100 basis points more a year in taxes, right? Um, it's not insignificant for long-term taxable investors. And so that I kind of looked at it and I, I just kind of critiqued it from a, a tax policy point of view. And, and I didn't really see much justification. So just going back, this provision was originally put in in 1969. Prior to 69, corporations didn't pay tax on distributions of securities, appreciated securities. 69, Congress uh, starts to curtail that, but exempts mutual funds. So we back then, it was only closed-end and open-end mutual funds. Goes along in 86, Congress says all corporations uh, are going to pay tax on the distribution of appreciated property after 86, but they continue the exemption for uh, mutual funds. It just moves to a different part of the, uh, of the code. And so this was out there, you know, in 86. But as Dave kind of noticed that mutual funds, it's really rare uh, for them to make in-kind distributions. Uh, not impossible, but very rare. Most mutual funds, my understanding is, promise to only make cash distributions for up to like 250000 which covers, you know, all, all almost everyone's uh, distributions. But uh, th- what happened was this was there. And then the ETF industry, I think, uh, you know, the, the person that invented it, um, 
This allowed the ETF industry to kind of grow, right? Because the creation and redemption process is fundamental. I call it part of the DNA of ETFs because it allows the NAV to kind of stick uh, pretty close to the trading price where everyone else is buying. And if it doesn't, people can come in and uh, make profits. And by them making profits, it keeps the NAV uh, and market price uh, pretty much in line. And that makes it then beneficial for people to be able to buy, sell, short, uh, write options on it. Um, And it eliminates some of the problems that we had with discounts and premiums in closed-end funds, right? So closed-end funds are almost now kind of a footnote in the history of of investment companies. Um, And so what we have left are, you know, basically open-end mutual funds, which, you know, we'll we'll throw ETFs into there as well. But then ETFs now are kind of, uh, uh, you know, everyone knows they've exploded, especially, you know, over the last 10 years. We might not be having this conversation if uh, uh, we were were a a decade ago from year 2000 to 2010, when there really wasn't much gains. Um, Yeah. So, Dave is entirely correct that it's the gains aren't um, they don't disappear. Uh, it's a deferral, so the shareholders are deferring tax on kind of these uh, e- economic gains that have arisen at the fund level. And it, it's just re- it's important to remember for taxable investors, those gains are still there. Uh, they're not going to be um, they don't disappear. However, we know uh, that eventually for uh, deferral benefits mostly. Uh, benefits higher income people more than lower income people. And then eventually uh, the gains are deferred by, for example, death. Uh, then they become uh, forgiven. But that applies to any other uh, gain. You're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. You know, I think the there are a lot of things that we can unpack here. I think it is important to point out that ETFs were not designed to be a tax deferral vehicle. And honestly, for the first 10 years of the ETF industry, nobody even talked about this. This was really when the advisor started finding ETFs as a tool for retail allocations at the advisor, you know, face of the coal mine. They're the ones that really latched onto this. I want to say 2003, four, five, when we started to see that early adoption by, um, by those financial advisors early in the context of where we are now, I guess. Um, so, so it was never designed to be a tax deferral vehicle. However, without that, there are all sorts of unintended consequences. Um, you know, the the numbers that are getting tossed around about you know something like maybe twenty billion dollars a year in new revenue that would come in if you got rid of this tax deferral. I'm very skeptical of that number for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the industry is very good at figuring out how not to do things like that, right? So I think you would just simply see new structures take place. You would see new investment management philosophies take place that um, that will delay and delay and delay booking those gains. Um, the The problems I have, though, are that there's this idea that somehow this is taxing the rich. Um, and the evidence doesn't actually suggest that ETFs have really, certainly in the last couple of years, when you look at the last few trillion dollars that have showed up in the ETF market, it's pretty easy to point that to the discount brokerage community. That's where that money is coming in. It's coming in from people, Schwab and TD and FIDO accounts, their E-Trade accounts, their Robinhood accounts. That tends not to be the ultra high net worth investors way of accessing the markets. They're tending to go through private funds, private allocations. Uh, you know, other kinds of brokerage accounts that don't show up in those classic discount windows. So, you know, the people who are benefiting most from this, I would argue it's somewhat unknowable, but I would argue is not the ultra high net worth investor. It's actually sort of the middle class investor who's managed to squirrel away an extra hundred grand outside their 401k. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, you raise, you raise, you raise a good point. Um, 
I, my one response might be that um, if we're looking at this is what the ICI has raised in the last couple of uh, press releases that, you know, the average or so the median household, I think, is uh, ETFs are about is about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of taxable income. Uh, and that's certainly uh, not uh, not wealthy. How, you know, my response would be, let's just assume that this imposes higher taxes on ETF uh, shareholders than than now. And I think that, that that's not an unreasonable assumption. You know, my, my response would be, well, those all those households can just put more money into their IRA and SEP IRA, right? The, for a household, you know, for a married, married filing jointly, it's up to about 198000 that you can put in. That's 12000 sorry, 198000 of yearly annual income, uh, and it, you can put in $12,000. So, if, for example, ETFs became kind of less tax favored than they are now, which is possible, those investors would certainly, to me, seem to have more room to to just shift into uh, tax exempt, you know, investments, IRAs, Roth IRAs, SEP IRAs, the whole alphabet right, out but there. But then they're giving up their timing options, right? The beauty of the ETF has been you can actually put $100,000 away for your kid's college, which is in six years, and you can put it away in the S&P 500 or whatever you want, some balance fund, whatever it is you choose to do. And you don't have to worry about whether or not that's going to get degraded over the next six or seven years because a fund all of a sudden throws off a 10% capital gain because one giant shareholder decided to get out and they're an institution and therefore the fund had to take, had to take the hit. If you look at the higher volume ETFs, the implication of all of a sudden taxing all of these gains continuously can be quite profound. A lot of ETFs actually have you know, full turnover implied by their creation redemption mechanism on a monthly basis. So if you think about that, what that would mean is that you'd effectively be constantly making these streams of distributions to investors simply to make the creation redemption mechanism hold for NAV purposes. So you, you, you end up taking the NAV tracking function of ETFs and burdening it with the taxes, which I worry could actually unwind some of what we see beneficial about the NAV tagging structure. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Just think about the way the ETF works. Shouldn't it be based on your action? It just it just seems like the if anything the mutual fund. Do you own a mutual fund or have you ever gotten a capital gains just from just sitting there? It's that I think is what really it's not like the ETFs dodging or or getting away with anything. It's almost just like they're making it more fair. And whether that was an accident from the early uh invention of the ETF, again, they were really looking at how to just protect the investors of the fund from what 
other investors did. And that is something that Vanguard struggled with a lot early on. And that's why they actually did not let certain investors in the fund. They didn't want to incur costs in the fund. So the ETF externalizes costs. And one of those is your own taxation is on your actions. That just seems pretty fair to me. Right. Now, you you raise a good point. Uh, Subchapter M has... You know, I, I I hope that at a minimum that um, at least the, the public discussion of this proposal could kind of, you know, hopefully whatever happens to to this going forward is at least at a minimum stimulate some kind of discussion of how we should uh, kind of rewrite. It's it's called subchapter M of the Internal Revenue Code, but the rules for taxation of an investment company for, for some of the issues that uh, that you you um, and also Dave ha- have raised. Um, uh, it's it. You know, it's about 60 plus years. Uh, and, you know, with all of the changes in the, the tax code outside of this, with all of the changes in kind of the investment vehicles, it, it, it's just kind of a, a system that's showing it's it's rust. OK, totally agree. Uh, totally agree right. with that. <laughs> um, OK, now. Uh, you know, let, let's just go back to to, to your point here. What, what it depends on me. You know, unfortunately, or, or the, the the structure of of uh, in subchapter M is that the basically the, the the investment company calculates right. It's taxed like a corporation. If it doesn't distribute, it's going to pay tax like a corporation. So it calculates all of the investment income, including the gains, dividends, short term gains. Uh, uh, it calculates all that, and then it basically uh, can avoid tax by making distributions. Okay, uh, and uh, that's you know that's kind of the system that we have. Uh, your system would be basically basically would make each uh, mutual fund investment into kind of like a big IRA, right? If as long as I don't sell, it's kind of what we call a consumption tax, right? As long as I don't sell, so it's it, it, call it your four hundred one k. As long as I don't pull it out, I don't pay any tax. I'm just not sure we're, we're quite ready to go there. And then one of the, if we step back, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of do a lot of things. It's like Twister, right? Eventually you're going to fall down. But, you know, the, the, the original idea behind taxing uh, investment companies, mutual funds, was that you'd roughly get, the, you know, it was designed for the small guy to be able to get uh, d- diversification, okay? And then you'd roughly get the same tax consequences as if you invested directly. So if the investment company gets um, interest income, you get passed through as interest income. If they get a long-term capital gains, they get passed through to you as a long-term capital gains. And so if you went to as, uh, what, you know, I know Dave has made this point, other people have made the point that let's just make sure that if I, if I don't do anything, if I don't receive any Anything, I don't pay any tax, then it kind of turns it into a, a big IRA. And I'm not sure that we should distinguish, you know, we should give that benefit to investment companies versus individual investing or what Dave alluded to, this uh, uh, kind of direct indexing but, that's, that's potentially coming down. There, there's a big difference because in an IRA, one of the reasons you get tax deferral in an IRA is because you should be making transactions over time, right? So if I'm 100% equity as a 30-year-old, I definitely should be selling down some of that equity as I approach 65. So there is an there's a societal good in saying, hey, you know what, Mr. 60-year-old, we're going to let you sell down some of your highly appreciated stock so that you can do a better thing and get a little bit safer in your allocation. 
that's a little different than what we're talking about here with what happens inside an ETF, right? Because the main benefit to society of ETFs tax deferral is the fact that when those things are eventually taxed, they will most likely be taxed at a much higher level because all of the gains have instead been embedded into the fund and thus invested on behalf of the government who will ultimately tax them. So there, I get what you're saying, but there is a, there's a different reason for it in, uh, in an IRA, which is to engender actually useful behavior for society versus, versus the ETF, which I've always argued, is, like Eric was saying, is much more about tax fairness. It's much more about not getting hit with a 10% you know, you know, capital gains distribution a week after you put your money in, which I've gotten those emails yep. from advisors before, believe me. And, and that's, a, that's a genuine hit. So there is always this robbing the future to pay for the past or rob, to robbing, the, you know, robbing the present to pay right. for the future and vice versa. And Washington loves to do that. And you know, that never works out well anyway. Um, I, I, what I worry about is simply eliminating the, the single line item here without, as you pointed out, Jeff, a comprehensive review of, of all of the implications of this taxation is exactly the kind of ham-handed move we get out of Washington all the time that has tons of unintended consequences that nobody has even done the math on. Right. No, and I, I think, I, and, and also okay. I think a lot of normal people look at this and they go, okay, I get it. Only half the country actually owns stocks at, at all. So you are looking at just one half of the country benefiting here. I get that. A lot of the lower income folks don't get this benefit. And that's that's a fair point. That said, when you turn it relativity in another way, I think a lot of people are like, well, why mess with small investors using ETFs? There are much bigger fish to go after on the tax front. There's a lot of loopholes to go after. So there's also the relativity issue as well, looking at it versus other uh, situations where some really, really rich people, institutions get away with uh, not paying taxes. Well, or, or just direct indexing, right? I mean, that to me would be the immediate impact. Yeah, here. right. If you flip the switch on this, every $100,000 plus investor would immediately become a direct a indexing investor. client, end up with better tax treatment than they're getting out of the ETF, honestly, because for the most part, they'll be able to carry tax losses forward, which is not something the average $100,000 investor spends much energy on. So if anything, removing this from the ETF would shove everybody in that sort of mass affluent market out of ETFs, which would be bad for the ETF market, would be bad for individual investors for whom that is their best option at the benefit of, you know, the parametrics and the canvases of the world. Yeah, no, I, 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 would, I would agree that uh, something like this could stimulate, uh, you know, I, I mean, but that that's already on the horizon, right? You know, JP Morgan, Vanguard, BlackRock, they're already looking at uh, direct indexing, direct, I call it direct investing, uh, Dave calls it direct indexing, uh, right, where you would be treated as a, a holding those shares directly, right? And so you could do the tax loss harvesting. Um, you could defer the gains. Uh, you would make, uh, in essence, uh, that decision subject to the the robot and whatever rules you've set up. Um, and I think that that's an important thing to to kind of look at. Um, Let's kind of look, you know, I think it's important to talk about uh, the real stimulus for this, I think, was, again, the article in, in Bloomberg and by another uh, financial journalist uh, at FactSet, Elizabeth Kashner, that talks about the heartbeat trades, right? Um, and so if we separate just the in and out, uh, here's the S&P 500. We go in and out, in and out. There's no changes. 
I'm almost, you know, saying, well, that might not be a horrible thing, right? If we have no change in the underlying portfolio, fine. We, we, let, we let it run, right? Um, and that's, that's roughly, if I just held the underlying S&P 500 shares, nothing changed. We just let it run uh, until I, like Eric says, until I sell. The problem is uh, these things that are referred to as heartbeat trades. And just for the listener, they're basically is a fund uh, has to sell some of its securities or dispose of them. If it sold them, it would have gain, which would be taxed then to all shareholders. Um, What it does then is, as reported, is that uh, a market maker, a bank will come in and a fund will say, oh, I have to get rid of shares that are worth a billion dollars. And, you know, I have a billion dollars of gain. If I sell them, there's a billion dollars of gain for everyone. So two days before or three days before, someone will deposit, uh, they'll create a billion dollars worth of shares um, uh, with the basket. And then, you know, uh, at the rebalance date, a billion dollars goes out to uh, in a redemption. But the shares that go out are not a, a pro rata share of all of the uh, shares in the S&P 500, but the ones that have the gain. So if you step back and look at this, I think most tax people would say, well, what's really happened is the market maker has just exchanged a portfolio of of shares one through 490 for a uh, portfolio of shares 491 through 500. We just swap shares. I think it's actually worse than you think it is. Uh, I mean, if if you're if you're approaching this as uh, some sort of abuse of the system, there's actually no requirement anywhere in there that that it's 499 versus one. Right. It can be 500 and 500 in both directions as long as there's enough space in between that it can be deemed as having economic risk. No, so, no, no. no so, but, the, but the problem is, is, is the is in the 500 versus 500 that happens every day, right? 500 versus 500 goes right, in and but, out. But my point is, there are plenty of funds out there who don't have an exhaustion reason to be unloading any of their shares and are simply doing this to wash their tax liabilities away. And they're they're basically doing a creation for 100 securities, and then they're doing a redemption for all 100 securities, and they're just swapping the tax lot. I'm saying let's assume that that's okay, right? Because the underlying right. portfolio stays the same. At the fund level, we get rid of the gains. Okay, let's, let's just make an assumption that that's fine. My problem comes is when the, you're taking out one share, 10 shares uh, uh, that otherwise have gain, you've just swapped one basket for another basket. If you and I did that, Dave, you know it's taxable. If I swap you Microsoft for Amazon, it's taxable. If I swap yeah. you Microsoft for Microsoft, it's not taxable. But our basis would stay the same. My concern is that the heartbeat trades um, allow for an ETF but really not a mutual fund, to adjust its portfolio. So me as an investor in the ETF, my portfolio is actually changing, right? So it's it, so Eric, it's it's not as if uh, we, my view is you shouldn't be able, you should, you should be taxed now when those portfolio changes happen. If you held the shares and you wanted to get rid of your 10 or 15 shares, that's a taxable event. But that's not heartbeats. That's just custom baskets. Yeah, custom. Yeah, and, and, but we, we just, I, I, we just I, encoded I, that in a new law. I don't think we're going to get rid of that part. Yeah, but, I, I see what but, you're saying. But, like, like You're saying if you go into a mutual fund, you are a pool, you're with a pooled, it's a pooled investment. So therefore, you guys are all, the, the portfolio manager, you're with them. And you're buying and selling stocks, you should get taxed. I think generally people, though, they, they don't look at it that way. And maybe that's the problem. They just see, if I buy and sell shares of Microsoft, I get taxed when I do that. And an ETF is like that, where I think people don't go and actually put themselves inside the fund as if they're in this 
nice little club of people who are all buying and selling stocks together because the PM is doing it. And so all they know is they just get hit with the tax bill. So I, I don't know. I think there's – I know what you're saying, but don't you think people just are more thinking that it should just be like when you buy and sell a stock on your own? Yeah, but uh – I don't think you should be able to accomplish something through an ETF indirectly. What's happening with Dave called them custom portfolios. Yeah, it's just a I call them even another variation of the heartbeat that you shouldn't be able to adjust your portfolio without having making it a taxable event. Right. So when Bloomberg reported on this about a month ago, when there was a big rebalance, right, was it the Russell Russell 3000, right, 40 or 50 shares, uh, and, and they just reported everyone's doing heartbeat trades, right? And I said, well, wait, if I'm, if I'm a shareholder in Russell 3000, and, and all of a sudden now I have a different economic exposure, um, you know, I think that that's an appropriate time to pay tax. So one, you know, if, 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 if we could agree. So one, one issue would be if Congress says, well, the in and outs for the baskets, right? A whole basket in and out, a representative basket in and out. We could, nothing's changing. My economic exposure isn't changing. That, you know, seems to be, uh, uh, I could see making an argument for not making that a taxable event. But when the ETFs, um, underlying portfolio changes, uh, and then they use it, they basically swap those shares for shares from a market maker. Uh, I think that there is, you know, there's, under tax common law, that's that's permissible. Dave clear, uh, correctly stated that the SEC allows these custom portfolios, but just because the SEC allows it doesn't mean that uh, they don't determine the tax benefits. So I, right. I, I would well, distinguish that's, that. That's, to me, the nut of the issue here is, right, we've now codified a whole bunch of things that when you wrote your paper, you you very carefully go through and point out these are from exceptions. This is what, you know, this is the rule you need an exemption from to do this, right? Most of that's all gone away because totally. of the ETF, ETF rule. So we cleared up the operational side quite dramatically. And to your point, we've done nothing on the tax side. So the tax side is just the same as it ever was. Um, I, it's interesting to hear you say that you actually think the sort of custom basketing issue is more problematic than the full basket heartbeat trading because the full back basket heartbeat trading is actually the thing that Elizabeth's been writing about and that I think has actually caused the most furor, which is the idea that you can have a non-economic activity, i.e. I'm going to give you all 500, you're going to give me all 500 back in three days. That's a, clearly a, not a particularly economic activity that can have huge implications right. on the tax just, basis of the fund. Right. The, the reason I, I'm, I'm not as concerned about the uh, entire baskets is you're correct. That would lower the gain. They're using it just to lower the potential gain inside the ETF. But if ETF never sells, that gain's never going to be realized, right? Um, that's why I, I don't have quite as much problem, you know, from, you know, it's not pure good tax policy, but I don't have quite as much problem with that hmm. because it, it, all we're doing is lowering the, the gain inside the ETF. But, it but it if, seems the gain, like it, if that never happens- It's intractable because how would you possibly track that? Virtually every basket is optimized. Like almost literally every single creation basket ever done has been optimized at least at one share level, right? So we talk right. about full replication, but we don't do this in half shares. No, so no, every basket is wrong. But but one thing you could amount. you could say is that uh, we have a fifty two b six. This provision continues, except that unless you distribute a um, if you distribute a custom basket, you get taxed. Right. Uh, obviously, within reason. If you if there are derivatives inside, you can't I, that, transfer those. Th- th- within reason doesn't play very well. In these no, <laughs> like, there's usually not a lot of reason in these discussions. A proportion amount. Right. You have to. <laughs> distribute 
you, you know, you know the rulings that they've given for yeah, yeah. Uh, for uh, closed end funds. So closed end funds don't get this rule, right? They and but the IRS has allowed them in private letter rulings, but not not recently uh, to get the benefit of this rule. By the statute, they don't issue redeemable securities, um, and so they've just required that you basically have to distribute a pro rata share of each security, with it with some exceptions, and then a pro basically a pro rata share of the basis, right? That goes out. Um, you know, something like that maybe maybe accepted. Uh, and then the only thing that would be hit were what are, what are the kind of the trades that were talked about uh, in the Bloomberg article. Um, uh, again, when there's a taxable acquisition, uh, you know, mutual funds have to pay tax on that, but ETFs heartbeat their way out of that. And that's something that I, I, I think uh, I, I don't think that there's much defense at all for that. When that article came out, you know, one of the things was, well, um, Vanguard, BlackRock, these companies uh, look at it as their fiduciary duty to protect their investors. So that would be the defense. Is, they have and, to. And, and no, advi- no, under yeah. current law, and they, advisor, they should be sued yeah. if they don't. No. Tax loss harvesting and advisor, this is what all fiduciaries do, no? I understand that argument. But then, then the real question is, though, what should be the rules? What should the rules be? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and okay. I think that's a reasonable conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, so Dave, how existential is is this for the ETF as we know it? Uh, I don't think it's. I don't. It, the only place it could become an existential crisis is if it really messes up the market maker incentive to do creation and redemption. So if if all you're doing is going to the the structure of the 40 Act fund that is the ETF and saying, hey, you know what? We're going to change the rules a little bit on what you have to distribute out to your shareholders, like on the regular. That's not that big a deal. If what they instead do is try to come back at this through the AP and market making system, that actually has some really scary implications. Now, that's not what's being talked about. What's being talked about is simply removing this at the at the 40 Act level. Um, it's not existential. I don't think ETFs go away. The liquidity, the access, the cost advantages, none of those get changed at all. Um, the certainly the the sort of public acceptance doesn't just reverse all of a sudden. People don't all of a sudden go back to trying to find an S&P 500 mutual fund because now all of a sudden they don't get a tax advantage in their S&P 500 ETF. It would simply put them at parity. And at parity, most mutual funds still look substantially worse, both on a cost basis, a tracking basis, like you name it, right? I mean, just just the fact they have to hold cash to meet redemptions means that in general, most mutual funds are going to still look worse. And and the trend that we've seen and talked about on, on the podcast before of mutual funds converting into ETFs would we do you think we'd see any changes there or Not do you think really. those mutual I, funds would continue to to become ETFs 
I, I think the tax advantage, the tax efficiency of ETFs has always been a bit of a nice to have. Um, for some investors, it's a huge deal, right? If you happen to be a multi-million dollar taxable investor who has exhausted all of your other ways of squirreling money away, yeah, the ETF's been really helpful for you. But ETFs are increasingly used by huge institutions who don't care about this. They're actually even being used inside a lot of IRAs and 401ks at this point, and people don't care there either. Um, and obviously, the, the hardcore trading community doesn't care about any of this because none of them are holding for long enough for these things to matter. So it's this narrow slice where, yeah, they'd really care, but that slice isn't going to go to mutual funds. They're just going to direct index. Yeah, and let me jump in here. I, I, I it, you know, you know, it's killing me, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do these panels with Dave all the time, and I, I love riffing off of him. I feel like we could just uh, sit here and go off for hours. But um, okay, a couple things. Conversions. There was a conversion today, actually, from a pot ETF uh, converted to a um, or pot mutual fund converted to an ETF. I don't think that was for tax tax reasons. Uh, it had been outperforming the pot ETFs, and nobody was buying it. I think ETFs are just where the fish are biting. But I do think the tax could help some mutual fund conversions. Um, that's a, a one feature. Um, I was telling Joel earlier that tax the tax efficiency of ETFs is sort of like Superman's uh, X-ray vision. You know, it's he can still fly, he can still do you know what he does, but he you know he's he's going to lose something. And I agree. I think direct indexing is the natural benefactor of those really wealthy people. That's who I think is really going to just avoid it anyway, is the really wealthy people. But, just the, gonna... that's, but this is part of the problem is the $20, million, $20 billion we're theoretically talking about, when it's actually collected in th- like if you eliminated it today and say, okay, let's take a look in 2024 and see how much money we made, it's going to be like five, not 20, because the industry is very smart at figuring out how to get people out of the situation. And I think um, the, who would probably be the biggest loser would be active ETFs like an ARC or a 100%. high turnover smart beta ETF. Because a Vanguard ETF is just not turning over that much anyway. Um, you know, Bogle always said index mutual funds are almost as tax efficient as an ETF, even with that special thing you guys have, because we just don't trade. There's so many ways. This is what blows my mind. There's so many ways around it. You run the whole thing through a 25% Cayman subsidiary. It all goes away. Done. Like, I mean, there's so many ways around that problem that if I wanted to run a 300% active equity fund in an ETF structure and all this went away, I can think of three or four ways that I can do it right now inside the 40 Act that nobody's even talking about. So, Professor Cologne, you've clearly kicked a hornet's nest. Um, are you surprised? Um, yeah. You, uh, and have uh, you have you gotten emails? Like, what, what kind of feedback have you gotten from well, all this? It, it's funny. This article, uh, when I when I wrote it, um, uh, Dave, Dave was Dave would probably laugh. You guys will laugh. Is this is the only article that people wrote me emails about? Uh, it wasn't a criticism, but it was like, oh, my name is uh, Joe Smith. I, I have a, a ten million. Or I run ten billion dollar family foundation in uh, San Francisco. Do you have any ideas on how we could use this? Uh, tons of those emails, uh, actually. So people looked at it. Oh. I didn't know about this. How can I now uh, build up on it? And three three points, basically, you know, Dave kind of alluded to this, and I think Dave would have better information than I would. I don't think ETFs, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a road bump for them. But if we look at the universe of investors, we have the foreign investors, uh, you know, offshore hedge funds, we have endowments, we have um, uh, pensions, uh, we have 401ks, 403bs that are now uh, allowing purchases of ETF. So there's just a huge universe of tax 
exempt money out there that this is irrelevant, right? So if any of the listeners say, oh my God, this is going to, I have ETFs in my uh, IRA or anything like this, this will not affect you uh, one iota, right? And I just think that this, you know, worst comes to worst, it just uh, makes ETFs a little bit uh, the the proper, what we call tax clientele, where you're going to be at least taxed is the the tax exempts will will move more into this. um, And then the taxable people may move to the extent that you can uh, away from this. Now, let, um, Dave raises a good point about the, the, the upcoming uh, wave of direct indexing, uh, direct investing. The heartbeat trades, which allow you to basically get rid of one or two or five uh, securities without paying tax via rede- redemption creation, when you're direct indexing, you won't be able to do that, right? And so that just kind of tells you if you can't do it directly owning the shares, why should you be able to do it indirectly via an ETF, right? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I think this direct indexing is a great thing. It allowed the tax loss harvesting. Um, but at the same time, for portfolio adjustments, uh, they will be taxable uh, if there are gains, right? Again, you'll be able to tax loss harvest uh, to mitigate uh, some of that. Knowing what we know about D.C. and how this has gone down, Professor Cullen, what are the odds that you think that this bill becomes a law? I'm going to say not great because uh, the um, uh, there's... Mutual funds and ETFs are everywhere, uh, so you're stepping on everyone's toes. I would hope at a minimum, uh, you know, I'm not giving you an answer. I I, I will see what happens in the Senate. I don't think it was in the House bill uh, on Friday, right? It didn't get in there. I know that the White House is looking at this, uh, but so we'll see what happens in the Senate. I can't give you a a percentage, but at a minimum, I hope it kind of stimulates a discussion of how in the U.S., you know, we can kind of fix the taxation of kind of public investment companies. For for everyone, okay. Try try and put some odds on that. Oh, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say under fifty percent. <laughs> okay, and 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 Dave, how about from your perspective? Uh, I think there's no chance that a straight up rescission of a fifty two b six happens in this Congress. I, I don't I. I would give that essentially zero odds of happening. I think we'll get a Bitcoin ETF first. Um, As far as the broader issue, um, I think if we actually ended up with a, I mean, two, two crazy scenarios, either a clear mandate for one party and every branch of the Congress and White House, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, or actual bipartisanship to try to solve some real problems. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. But with one of those two priors, then yeah, I think a full relook at what we do in investment taxation would be phenomenal because it's a mess, right? We haven't had substantial look at that since what, Tamara, which was 86, right? That was the last time we actually looked at the tax code and did anything useful to it, in my opinion. And since then, all we've done is sort of poke around the edges as a political political football, but the, the investment tax code's a nightmare. And so I'm all for cleaning it up. Is this, repeat, like, if I'm looking at this massive tax bill, say I'm like uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's he's got a lot of power, right? And I look at this tax bill, is that line really, do I even know what that is? Is that a deal breaker for most people? Or do, are there other things in the bill that would be deal breakers and need to be taken out and amended? I'm wondering if the all the horse trading they do, doesn't involve this, but this just stays in and everybody's happy and it does go through. 
I, I think it's hard to tell. I, uh, early on in my career, I worked in D.C. Uh, and, and saw some from the inside, some some of the way the tax legislation uh, gets passed. Uh, it's not pretty. That's why I just didn't really want to give any any predictions. You know, the 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 the, the one thing that kind of keeps it, I think, a little bit bigger than than day zero than, than Dave's view is is the revenue associated with it, uh, apocryphal or not, imaginary or not, um, just because they're going to need revenue offsets, right? Um, and for to pay for all of this, and so I think it, you know, in, in a normal year I would say it had very little chance, but uh, this year I think it definitely has some chance yeah. of staying in. That, right? That's fair. That's fair. I, I, I have I, a cruel I'll, joke. I'll back up a little bit. I, I have a cruel joke. You mean it has a heartbeat? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Eric is gonna, Eric's going to kill me for that. He, um, he's way too proud of himself. I can tell. Oh, I, I'm no. looking at him. Okay, Professor Cologne. Um, final question, which is the final question we ask of everyone um, on the on the podcast. What's your favorite ETF ticker? Oh, ETF ticker! Oh my goodness! Uh, I, I will admit I don't own an ETF. Uh, we we don't allow them through our re- retirement plan uh, at, at Fordham, um, but probably probably Spy. I have some familiarity with that. Uh, and Dave, I think I know. I, I think I've heard yours before. But what, oh. what's your su- what's the soup du jour? Uh, I I'm still stuck on Moo. The Van Eck yeah. agri, agribusness. I still think it's the. I mean, it's a, it's how do you not classic, vote right? for an, onomatopoeia? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. All right, it, Dave. Dave, Dave Nag, uh Professor Cologne. Thank you so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Joel. Thank Thanks you. For very nice. Very pleasure, Dave, speaking with you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Dave Nadig at Dave Nadig. And you can find Professor Cologne at Fordham Law NYC. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.